We're starting a new series. We'll be, we'll, we'll be in, the, in the book of Job for, for about six weeks until Advent season. It's a new series, and I've never preached through the book of Job before, so this is all kind of new to me. I hope it, I hope it goes okay. Um, Job is a book that we often turn to, isn't it? It's a book that we, leads us to itself because of the stuff and the troubles of life. The, the, the troubles and the suffering pushes us toward this book because this book shows us a, a good and godly man who seems to ju- suffer wrongly. And so we go to the book to find out what? Why? Isn't that normally the reason? You, you turn to the book of Job. Why is it that godly people suffer? And yet that's not the purpose of the book of Job. We come to Job with that purpose in mind and we're unfortunately disappointed. We don't like the answer we seem to get out of the book of Job. It doesn't quite seem to satisfy us if we're looking for why is it that godly people suffer. You know what? One of the reasons we're not satisfied in the answer that we get, because we don't get an answer. The book of Job never answers that question. Could it be? That's not the question the book of Job is supposed to answer. That's not why it was given to us. It was given to us for another purpose entirely. And one of the ways to get the wrong answer is to ask, ask the wrong question. And so let's start asking the right question, and that is, in the midst of whatever, in the midst of when I can't see, in the midst of when the circumstances seem to be telling me something different, can I trust God? That's the purpose of the book of Job. And we're going to get, we're, we're get that even when there, is, there are strong and powerful voices that say something else, when there are sometimes those close to us who say something else, can I trust God? That's what we're going to discover through the book of Job. So we're, we're going to start in Job chapter 1 and 2, can I trust God? And in these early chapters, we're going to find that Actually, God himself is on trial. We're posing the question, can God be trusted? Can God's ways be trusted? And as we work through it, you're going to see that I changed my wording of the outline a little bit from what's in the notes in front of you. I I give that earlier in the week, and then, well, I change things along the way. I change things from the first service to the second service, so don't be surprised at that. But um, So I'll highlight those as we go, but, but God's ways... How God runs his universe is actually being challenged in these first couple of chapters. And so we're going to take a look at that as well. But we're going to, first of all, meet Mr. Job. I want us to read most of the first two chapters. So let's again stand. It's a familiar story, but I want us to get into the story that I can refer to a lot. But follow along in the the book of Job, chapter 1, and let's meet Mr. Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God, turned away from evil. There was born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his days, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did repeatedly. 
Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, angelic beings, and Satan also came along with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, well, have you considered my servant Job? That there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day. When his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, telling the story, there came another and said, Fire of God fell from heaven, burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still telling the story, There came another and said, Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels, took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still telling the story, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, all of them. I alone have escaped to tell you. And Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground, and he worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gives and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day. When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord, and the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Well, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, even though you incited me against him so that you could destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, well, skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with him to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes mourning his grief. His wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips, his words. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, this story, in this story, we are given even more than Job himself was given. 
We are given a look behind the curtain into, any, into a heavenly reality. The Lord, we might take it to heart and realize there is more going on than we can see. And then help us, Lord, to trust you. In the midst of hurt and brokenness and grief and wrong, Lord, help us to trust you. Speak to us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your seats. So we meet Mr. Job. First of all, Mr. Job is a, is a good and godly man. God says so. We don't need to take Job's word for it. We don't take his friend's word for it. God says there is none like him. He is, he is an upright man. Um, he's from the land of Uz. We don't necessarily know where that is. Where is Uz? You don't find that in the Bible. It's probably to the east of Edom. It's in that area, and that fits with the other details of the story. I won't really go into all the details, but think of southeast of Edom, and there's where Uz is from. The story is early, as early as Abraham, maybe even prior to Abraham. Again, details of the story help us with that. For instance, Job's wealth is not counted in gold or silver. Gold's, Job's wealth is counted in his livestock, the size of his herds. Also, he serves as a family priest, the father as priest of his family. This is before Moses. There's not the Mosaic kind of sacrifices and requirements described here. Job is very wealthy. He farms. He sells livestock. He apparently, with the camels, also has probably a caravan business. He works in the import-export trade. Maybe that's where he met those Chaldeans that decided they'd come and check out his camels. Job's family is happily, harmoniously together. You know, that, that's big in the ancient Near East. That's big in the Near Eastern world, even today in the Middle East, where family is important. And yet, the normal picture, when, when, when the Old Testament zooms in on families in the ancient Near East, it's not a pretty picture. There's something wrong with family. In fact, you look at as early as Cain and Abel, you look at Ishmael and Isaac, the sons of Abraham. Look at Abraham and the conflict with his own, with his own, his own nephew Lot. Look at uh, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, the one tribe uh, suspicious of another through the book of Judges. Family is dysfunctional in the Old Testament, and yet Job's family stands out as happily, harmoniously together. Socially, Religiously, economically, among his own family, Job is living in God's shalom. Job is living the blessed life of God's peace and blessing. Life as it was intended to be. Well, at least until the bottom falls out. And that's about to come. In verse 1, you see Job's personal identity as a righteous man, blameless and upright, who fears God and turns away from evil. He's blameless in his integrity. He's, he's upright in his actions. In verse 2, we see his family blessings. In verse 3, we see his economic prosperity. He's going to lose, verse 3. He's going to lose, verse 2. Will he lose, verse 1, his integrity of heart and hand? Job's name, if it comes from Aramaic roots, would mean one who returns to God. One who always returns to God. One who is consistent in his return to God. He trusts God. Will he still? That's a question that's set before us in the book. 
Where else can he go? God is the one that he can trust. Now, that's Job. But what about us? You may see that description of Job, a man blameless and upright who fears God and turns away from evil, and already you're wondering, well then, can what is said of Job be true for me? Because I don't know that I would describe me that way. But I would. If you are in Christ, I would. As Brian described earlier, if you are in Christ, you stand before God, not in ourselves or in our own rightness. We stand before God in Christ. We are fully accepted in God's beloved Son. That He has removed all of our guilt, our shame, our sin, our shortcomings, and He has, in fact, bestowed upon us the rightness, the righteousness, the right standing of Jesus Himself so that we are seated in the heavenlies in Christ. We, we come to God as children whom he delights in, who cry out to him, Papa. And he urges us to come near. Your standing in heaven is even better than Job. So surely if there's something that Job can learn in the midst of these circumstances, then there's something for us as well. But there's a scene change now from, from the earthly to the heavenly. And in this earthly to the heavenly, we're, gonna, we're, we're introduced to the Lord, first of all. And the name is different than, we were talking in Malachi last week, and we've seen in some of the other post-exilic books, with, in, in the book of Haggai, for instance, the most common name for God post-exile in this small band of people that have returned into the land, and they're surrounded by people who are not for them. But the name for God that's prominent in those writings is the Lord of hosts, the warrior king. The God of angels' armies is always on their side. But here, the name for God in the book of Job is the Lord, the faithful covenant-keeping God. The God who covenants with and is always faithful to himself, I am the Lord, I change not. He is faithful to his promise, and so through his promise, he is always faithful to us, and you can count on him, you can trust him for what you do not see. The Lord is sovereign over more than we can see. God is sovereign even over the accuser, Satan. Here it's the personal being, the devil, and yet he's not named. Satan is not his name. It's not a personal name. Satan is a Hebrew word that means adversary. Here with the article, also in the book of Zechariah, it's used the same way, the adversary. It reminds us, Peter picks up on this. He says, your adversary identified the devil and what he does. So here it's a person, he's a personal being. He has, he has identity, but he also has accountability. There's not a dualism where God and the devil are in this big tug, tug of war, not at all. Satan is accountable to God. He must come and report in like everybody else. God is ultimately control in how far the adversary can go. God is all-knowing. He knows Job, and he commends him. God knows and confronts Satan. He knows what Satan is up to, even though he, he tries to hide it in vague ambiguities. The Lord asked Satan, where did you come from? What you been up to? Oh, you know, I'm just kind of walking around, looking at life, seeing what people are doing. No, that's not what Satan is doing. Satan walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's what he's up to, but he doesn't confess that openly. 
not before God. He says, well, the Lord says, well, have you considered my servant Job? Well, we'll get into that. But God is long-suffering. As he engages with Satan and Satan challenges him, Satan makes an accusation. Satan basically subtly challenges God's way of running the universe. And God is long-suffering even with the adversary. God condescends to let his argument be heard so that it can be proven wrong. God will not have angels in heaven or humanity on earth merely serve him because he's the greatest power in the universe. No, we can know him so that we can love him. And God allows Satan enough room for his accusation to be proven as false. He could just smack Satan down. Sometimes you wonder, why doesn't he? Maybe there's something bigger at foot. Maybe there's more there than we can see. You know, the opening chapters of Job, Satan never sees that. Even at the end of the book, Satan is not told what was happening in these two chapters. But we get that glimpse so that we can be reminded that the Lord is sovereign over more than we can see. And we can trust him. God's ways are best. They can withstand scrutiny. God is not above being challenged because his ways are best. They can take it. Paul would say to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'll bring it to Rome. Let the, let the best and the brightest have their look at it. Because the gospel holds up. It is true. It is defensible. It is God's absolute truth. They can stand scrutiny. You can trust God's ways. God blesses and cares for his people. He he prospers us in life, although not always on our terms. We are not on our own. Our Lord knows. Our Lord sees us. And God uses his redemption and grace in our lives to bless others, even to demonstrate his character and to bless the angels in heaven. A little more on that as we go. But we're also introduced here in this section. God is sovereign over all, even Satan. We're introduced to the adversary and we learn some things about him. He is a personal spiritual being. He is subject to God. He does not challenge God's authority directly. He just seeks to undermine God's rule. He intentionally sows doubt in God's character, in God's ways, and God's wisdom, and God's purposes. He did that in the garden as well, didn't he? Oh, God knows that if, if you take of that fruit, you're not going to need God. You'll be able to run things on your own. God's holding back something good from you because he wants to be the boss of you himself. That's what Satan was implying in the garden, where God desired us to be kept from the hurt and the pain of sin, to be innocently naive of it all. He uses vague ambiguity. I'm just walking around. I'm just checking things out to conceal his actual activities and purposes. He declares things as settled fact, as if they were true, though they are not. If you do this, God, he will curse you to your face. Go ahead. Let's see what happens. Let's see what Job does then. And we'll see what Job does. But Satan has proved wrong. 
And though he says it confidently, boldly, arrogantly, as if it were true, though it is not. Jesus said he's a liar from the beginning. And he still is. He has not changed. He has not reformed. He is immoral and evil. He eagerly does violent harm to Job as he would others in order to advance his own agenda. He doesn't care about anybody else. That's who he is. When you look at atrocities today, the terrible things that those Hamas terrorists did to, 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 to women and children and babies, which is even against the rules and laws within Islam, they did this, these things because this is who they are. This is who the enemy is like. This is what he looks like in the lives of humanity. He eagerly does violent harm to others because he doesn't care about others. He only cares about himself. Now these two worlds, the earthly scene and the heavenly scene, the seen and the unseen, these two worlds collide in a cosmic convergence. And there's a little rhetorical advice in the text, I read it three times, that sets up this collision. It's Vayahi Hayom. Vayahi Hayom, Vayahi Yahom. Three times the exact same Hebrew phrase. And the day came, and the day came, and the day came. It seems innocently enough, but it's stitching the two realms together. And the day came when the angels are gathered together in heaven. And the day came when Job's sons and his daughters were together and having their, their feast day, their celebration. And the day came when the angels are back in heaven again after causing such turmoil and hateful destruction. The things in the unseen world are engaged with and involved with the things that are happening within our lives and circumstances. The two should not be separated the way that the Western world does. We think about the material world as the real world, and we think about the spiritual realm as something perhaps for the future, or something philosophical and theological, but not the practical days-to-day -day of, quote, real life. Most of the world understands that the unseen and the seen world are impacting one another. You see why I said that? It's not just that the unseen world impacts the seen world, but the seen world, our physical lives, impact the unseen spiritual realms. What you do and choose matters in the heavenlies. Your life has way more significance than you realize, even as Job's life in this one encounter had significance beyond. Because, as the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? You see, the angels, even the adversary, have occasion and opportunity to learn about God and His ways and the glories of His redemption and salvation and mercy and grace through what God is doing through humanity. What God does in our lives, the working of God's grace in Christ toward us in our lives, the beauty of forgiveness, the angels do not experience this firsthand. They learn about God in this way from us and observing us. And they learn about faith. Faith in things not yet seen. They learn about that kind of faith by watching humanity because angels do not ex experience, angels do not exercise that kind of faith. That sounds bold. 
No, angels see God. They don't, in faith, believe what they don't yet see. But you and I have that privilege presently. Ephesians chapter 3 from verse 7 says, the, Paul talks about how angels learn from us. The gift of God's grace which was given me to preach Christ to the nations so that the church, or through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, or you could read that, might now in the present being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this is not just, just Paul's own opinion on the matter. Peter says very much the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12. It was revealed to them, the prophets, in the context, that those prophets were serving not themselves, but you, Christian believers, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which, and there, this whole gospel spreading is, is heaven breaking into and working in the midst of the seen world. But not only that, but the unseen world is watching. These things that God is now doing, things for our benefit and blessing, are things into which angels long to carefully and considerably look into. The angels study God's redemptive working in humanity. That's what Peter is saying. And he mentions it kind of casually as an aside, as if we should know this. The book of Job told us this from a very early time. So these two worlds collide have, with this little phrase, have you considered my servant Job? And can you imagine Job for a minute? There? Maybe imagine Job overhearing from heaven. Imagine Job being part of this conversation. He's just standing on the side, and God, God calls him out by name. God says, have you considered my servant Job? Well, there is, there is none like him. What does he say in verse 8? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Job's saying, yeah, do you hear what God says about me? I'm God's guy. I'm pretty special. God noticed. God saw me. Look what God said. He probably put it on a plaque and put it up in his office, you know. This is what God said about me. Job was pretty excited there initially. But then Job got to thinking, oh, my God. Oh, God, what have you done? God, why did you put a target on my back? God, why did you hold me up? Why did you single me out for such a privilege? When now his arrows are aimed at me. Oh God, what have you done? What about you? Would you rather be singled out by God for his praise? Would you rather play it safe? Keep your head down. I think a lot of us kind of try to do that. Just keep our head down. Stay out of trouble. You know, mind our own business. Don't make any enemies. We don't, we don't want extra attention. But what if the extra attention is the enemy's attention because... Because what God has, has said about you is true in your life. And in your life, the angels of heaven and the people of Brush Prairie see what faith looks like. That's a wonderful thing. And that is our privilege. In Job's life, even the devil had the opportunity, had the chance to observe and to learn of God's mercy and God's redemption. Have you considered my servant Job? This is what faith looks like. 
But the devil instead makes his ugly accusation. They don't love you, God. They serve you for what it gets them. They're in it for the bennies. Job, why? He serves you because he knows which side his bread is buttered on. He knows if he serves you and if he's, quote, faithful to you, you're going to bless him. And look at all the herds you've given him. Look at how happily his family goes. Everything in life is going God's way. Why going Job's way? Why would he not serve you? Take that away and let's see what happens. Yeah, you take that away and then he'll curse you to your face. He challenges how God runs his universe. He challenges the notion that God has the, has the, has the privilege to bless those whom he loves. Shouldn't any father do good to his own? And yet, Satan hates that. Satan's not concerned about anyone other than himself. The devil dares God to stretch out his hand against Job in verse 11, but God does not. Did you catch that? Catch that? Did you catch that in verse 11? That's important. Take a look at that again. Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you. And the Lord said, behold, all that he has is in your hand. God, God allows him. God extends permission, but God does not do it. Now, it's a technical difference, you say. It's kind of, a, kind of nitpicking, isn't it? I mean, God's sovereign. God's sovereign over more than we can see. So God is in control of all of this. So if God allows it, it's just like God doing it. Not quite. There is a subtle and yet important difference in that. If you believe the hurt and the pain that you're enduring in the present comes from the very hand of God, why would you go to God for help? And yet we are told to. We are told to come boldly before the throne of grace, that there we might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. God might have allowed something to come into our lives for his purposes, but he has not done the evil. Even if he allows evil to touch us for his purposes. There's a principle in life, isn't there? Short-term pain for long-term gain. It's true of exercise, it's true in sports, it's true in learning, learning a skill. Maybe it's, maybe it's true in all kinds of life disciplines. Maybe it's true in preparation for your career, saving up to buy your house. You've experienced that in all kinds of ways. Short-term pain, long-term gain. What if there's a lot of life in that? What if blessings come through raindrops? What if healing does come through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know he's near? To, to find him present, Psalm 46. What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst that this world can't satisfy? What if God would allow Satan to disrupt lest we become satisfied that prosperity in this life is enough? Because it is not. God could have slapped Satan down, threw him out, but the accusation against Job's faith would stand. It would linger in the air for angels to worry about. Maybe God does really function more like a godfather, mafia boss. Hey, it's a pretty nice herd of camels you got there, Job. It'd be a shame if something happened to him. No, that is not God. That's actually the accuser. That's the adversary. God could have slapped him down, but he allows the question to linger. He allows the question then to play out 
Will we trust and obey only because of benefits? What if we choose to trust and obey when we see no benefit physically, materially in life for doing so? Because faith is the conviction of things not yet seen. By definition, that's what faith is. So the trouble comes in verse 13. He loses his flocks, his herds, his camels, his donkeys, his servants, and even his sons and his daughters. All of them together. Satan challenges who God is and what God is doing. And God lets heaven and earth know who Satan is through what Satan does. Satan, through his heavy hand here, has actually given us all the more reason to trust ourselves to God instead. We can see who does not care. The Lord gives, if I could play with the song a little bit, the Lord gives and Satan takes away. Now God allows it, but for a greater purpose. So when Job will express that sentiment, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, he is confessing that God can be trusted even for what I do not yet see. And the day came, chapter 2 and verse 1. There's still more. There's a further uh, accusation. Satan will be allowed even to make Job's misery physically personal. He has broken his bank. He has broken Job's heart. And now he breaks his body as well. Satan suggests that Job really doesn't care as much, even about his own children, as he does his own body. Now, any loving father would lay down his body for the sake of his children. And yet, Satan makes this accusation. Why does Satan believe that? That Job actually loves his own body and his own comfort, even cares more about that than the death of his own children. Why does Satan make that accusation? Because that's what Satan believes. That's where he lives. He cares more about himself than any other, even other spiritual beings aligned in rebellion against him. He cares more about himself than anyone. So anytime you get a whiff of that selfish scent in the air, that essence of fallen sinfulness, run away from it. Go in the opposite direction. When you've got a choice between serving yourself and sacrificing for the benefit of others, always lean toward the way of Jesus. It's the opposite of the selfish accuser or adversary. And yet God allows this experiment even to go this far. Why? Are we mere pawns? Are we expendable? Are we merely collateral damage in some demonstration that God wants to make? No, it's because God knows Job. He says again, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Even in the midst of these things, he holds fast his integrity, though you incited me against him to destroy him, actually for you to destroy him. For no reason. Hold on to that thought. We're going to need that next week when we listen to Job's friends. For no reason. That's God's evaluation of the situation. Okay. Well, that tells us something else. When trouble comes, when suffering comes, often we wonder, is this because of my sin? 
Well, I don't know. Maybe. I can tell you this. It's because of sin. We are broken people in a broken world in desperately need of our Savior. Everything about this world and humanity in it is wrong except for God's redemptive work. So there's much brokenness, there's much hurt, there's much loss. There's, there's a lot that goes on as a result of sin. Now, is trouble that comes into your life because of your sin? I don't know. Don't jump there. Don't assume that's the case. Why? Because you are an object of his mercy. And grace, by definition, is God giving to us what we do not deserve. We have no right or claim to. Mercy, on the other hand, is God withholding that which we do deserve. And so if God is so merciful, then why would I assume that I'm experiencing his trouble because I deserve it? There's something in us that goes that way. Job's friends think that way, but don't. Assume that you are an object of God's delight and devoted love. Assume that, because that's what's true. We are fully accepted by God in His beloved Son. You can trust God even when life is broken. Look at verse 9 and 10. His wife. You know, Job wife's, Job's wife gets, a, gets kind of a, a rough billing here. You know, some people make the Joe joke, uh, couldn't, couldn't Job have spared a son or a daughter and taken the wife instead? She's of no help here at all. But could we have a little understanding? Could we have a little grace toward Job's dear wife? Job does. Look carefully at his words. Don't, don't read our assumptions into them. Does Job call his wife a foolish woman? No, he does not. Look at his words to his wife. His wife says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Well, first of all, can we realize that she has just lost her children? All of them. There's nothing harder for a mother to go through than the loss of her own children. Every loss, oh sure, she's lost status, and now she sees her own beloved husband suffering as he is, but she's just lost the, the, the children of her womb. Nothing hits her harder than that. Let's, let, let's extend her a little grace and understanding. And he responds to her. But, he said to her, he does not agree with her. You speak as one of the foolish woman would speak. He does not call her a foolish woman. He does not call her a woman who lives as if there is no God. No. He says, what you're saying right now is what a foolish woman would say. Remember your faith, my dear wife. Remember who our God is. It's kind of like the sharpness of Jesus' words toward, toward Peter when he says, Get thee behind me, Satan. He is not saying that Peter is Satan, but he's saying he's using your words right now. No, he doesn't call her foolish. He is understanding. He's compassionate toward his wife. He, he doesn't judge her as she vents in grief. He shifts from you to we. Look what else he says there in verse 10. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive or trustingly accept? That's what the word means. Shall we not also trustingly accept evil or trouble when it comes? And you notice how he shifted from you to we. 
He is inviting her back in to trust God as he is. And that's what we'll need to do for one another. You see, Job knows that God is sovereign in adversity. And Job does not, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. You know what that tells us? It's echoed twice. You know what it tells us? Satan's accusation was wrong. It has fallen flat. Satan's main big lie that started all this off is done. It is over. It is finished. He is proven wrong. And we don't hear from Satan again the rest of the book. So why does the book go on? Well, we'll have to come back next week for that. But in the midst of suffering, your faith is a rebuke of Satan's lies. Why does your faith matter? It's not a matter of your faith matters just to enjoy your own personal relationship and blessing with God. Well, that's in there. Your faith is really important because that's what makes you right with God and have a home with Him forever in the first place. Absolutely, that's there. But your faith in God matters more than that. Your faith in God matters to others. Your faith in God matters to others in this life and perhaps before all of heaven. Your faith is a rebuke to Satan's lies and declares to heaven and earth that God can be trusted. Maybe in your trial... You are not the one on trial. Maybe it's the notion of faith that is being put again on trial, like it was in Job's. Maybe the notion of, is God worthy of our trust? Maybe that's what's being challenged. And your faith, your stubborn trusting in God, even for that which you cannot yet see, matters to the people around you. It matters within your own family circle, and it matters perhaps even before all of heaven in ways that we do not yet fully see. I'm reminded of the martyrs in the, in, in the, in the book of Revelation, chapter 12. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, their confidence of God's forgiveness. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they did not love their present lives even unto death. They, to defy the lies, chose instead to worship God in faith. And that's what God sets before us as well. To choose in the midst of the lies around us, in the midst of circumstances which might suggest to us differently that God is indeed worthy to be trusted. To trust God, you need to know him. You need to know his promises. You need to tune your ear to hear his word in the midst of all the other things that might be shouted at you because you cannot see all that is going on around us. It's not unlike that blindfold. But we will hear his voice. We will trust God even for what we don't yet see. Let's pray. Father, Help us to do that. Father, help us to trust you when we don't yet see all that is going on around us. That, in fact, is the place of privilege where we can trust you not seen. Lord, help us to do this. It will be hard, and we do not, we do not underestimate that. Troubles will come. There is an adversary against us. There is the brokenness of humanity. And in this world, given to chaos... And yet, Father, the Lord is sovereign 
over things that we do not yet see. The Lord is sovereign over more than we can see. And Lord, we can then trust you. Help us to do that, Lord, in the midst of today, in the midst of the troubles, in the midst of our responses to circumstances and people around us. Help us, Father, to trust you, to indeed say, blessed be the name of the Lord, whatever the circumstance. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.